1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. I'm not doing the whole lot. Tim's divided it into eight teachings. So eight of us have got four chapters each, I think, unless Tim's got 12. He probably has. Um, since I'm first off, I've been asked to say something about the port and city of Corinth, because uh, actually ports is one of my subjects. Uh, there's a little map. Um, in the top corner to the left, you can see the map of Greece uh, with on its right-hand side the Aegean Sea, which is full of Greek islands, and on its left, the Adriatic that separates Greece from Italy, or when, Rome, when uh, Paul was around, the Adriatic that separated the Greeks who wanted to live in their own city-states from the Romans, but we'll come to that. Um, the rest of the slides will play behind me. I won't know what they are. They'll just happen. Let them roll. So uh, a bit about Corinth. Um, oh, yes. Uh, so Paul also advised in 1 Thessalonians that uh, you people should know something about the person who's standing up the front teaching you. So I'll say a little bit about myself as well. Um, and that is very relevant to the first problem that Paul addresses in this letter, or perhaps we should say these two letters. So I need to start off with a little bit about me. Uh, my name's Dorian, it's a Greek name, and uh, my wife just there is Penelope, also a Greek name, but we're not Greek, we're plain vanilla English. So um, I, uh, no, I, won't, I won't digress that way. We're just ordinary English people, but we've got Greek names, and I love reading the Bible in Greek, as you may shortly discover, because you're going to get some of it. Um, we're a small group tonight, and it um, seems to be laid out in here for us, not my decision, but laid out like a Bible study. But that's a good thing, because really, I'm just going to read the Bible to you. The way I read some of it, you might think, that's not in my Bible but I would ask you to check. I think you will find it's all in your Bible. I'm using mainly a translation by a guy called Dr. Richard Weymouth, who published his new translation of the New Testament in modern English in 1903. May not seem very modern now, but it's much better than what they were working with then. And certainly when I was at school, we used to have to read the authorized version all the time. So I, I love Dr. Weymouth's version. Um, and so that's what all my quotes are from. Um, a brief autobiography of me. Um, I will talk fast. Please listen fast. No reaction at all. Is anybody listening? I first came to Bath uh, University 53 years ago. I came to study construction engineering up at the top here, Claverton Down. Um, I did not have very good A-levels because I'd spend all my time at school doing theatre. And then when I did a repeat year to try and get better A-levels, I take it there are students here who've come with straight A's. Is that right? Yeah, well, I spent my year trying to get better A-levels uh, working in the theatre, in a repertory theatre. It was my first job. And so when I actually got to Bath, I still spent most of my time doing theatre. And I got some great reviews in the local paper. Anyway, the sandwich course demanded that I get into the construction industry, and I did, and I worked on various jobs in the region from Gloucester to Taunton. And while I was working uh, on the M5 Taunton bypass as a site engineer 50 years ago, 
51 years ago. Um, a friend from school told me about some fantastic things happening at a little church in a village called South Chard. Well, I don't suppose anybody here has heard of that. But um, not so many years ago, if you mentioned South Chard, people of a certain age in the room would go misty-eyed because that's where they all got baptized in, the, in water and baptized in the Holy Spirit, and I did in 1972. Um, and when I got back in the September of that year, I'd been counseled to go and find a guy called Steve who had started a house church here. You may have come across the same church with a different name now. It's called the Life Church. Now, that started more than 50 years ago. Um, so we were members of that church for about 30 years, and um, then we left and moved to a few churches outside the city. But then I felt God telling me, go join a church within the city. So that's how we came to be here. Um, just a bit about my connection with ports. Um, I worked as a railway civil engineer for seven years, working for British Railways, if anybody remembers that name. Um, and then I left to go and do some work on vehicle dynamics. Sounds a bit hysteric, doesn't it? But it meant that I was very well placed because I understood the civil engineering of the railway and by the time I'd studied this stuff, I understood how vehicles bounce up and down. I was able to give a lot of stuff, a lot of help to the railway community on how to get big containers through small railway tunnels. And I spent the next 30 years working primarily for the ports and for Eurotunnel, um, which brings us neatly to Corinth. Oh, there's a map. Well, there's another map. You can see that um, Corinth, if I had a long porting, uh, pointing stick, is at the head of a, a deep gulf jutting into Greece. Um, and being on the Adriatic side, rather than the Aegean side, where most of Greece's ports were, um, after the conquest of Greece by the Romans, it was the best port for communications with Rome itself and the rest of the Western Empire. So it became a very prosperous city. So and by the time Paul got there, yeah, it was a very prosperous place. Um, there were lots of Greeks there. There were lots of Romans there speaking Roman or Latin, I should say. And um, there was a Jewish community there as well speaking Hebrew. But backing up a bit before Paul got to uh, Corinth. He'd been in Macedonia in the north of Greece following the vision that you'll all remember if you've read Acts. Has everybody read Acts? Nod at least. Everybody read Acts one or two? You remember in there there's a story that Paul obviously related to Luke and Luke wrote down where he was woken in the night by a dream. He was in the area of Anatolia just to the north of Ephesus at the time and he was planning to carry on in northern Anatolia, but he had this vision of a man of Macedonia, we're told, and this man said to him in his dream, come over to us and help us. So Paul changed his plans, or rather scrapped his plans, made new ones, and sailed across to northern Greece, and um, the first place he got to was a Roman colony called Philippi, where ladies, it was a vision of a man of Macedonia, but when he got there, it was a lady that he met, and he started the first church in northern Greece around a lady called Lydia, 
And you'll find her mentioned in Acts 16, okay? So it wasn't all the chaps doing it. Some important ladies, and we'll come to another one presently as well. This talk tonight has been specially geared for the fact that I'm not expecting many guys. So he got to Macedonia, uh, sorry, to Philippi, and uh, he preached there, and he worked his way southwards through Greece. And um, basically the history of that journey was very much the same as his trip through Galatians. He preached, the Jews got upset, they kicked him out, he went to the Gentiles, soon the the Jews caught up with him and he was kicked right out of the city, and on one occasion he was stoned to death, but that's another story. But the same happened here in Greece. He was being kicked from the north of Greece southwards. Um, But as he went, he left his two companions, Timothy and Silas, behind to help the churches become established. But this meant that Paul was out in front, and he got to Athens, where he was waiting for Timothy and Silas to catch up with him. Now, the Athenians, we're told, liked a good debate. Um, especially about a new philosophy, as they saw it. And Paul was invited to uh, speak and open a debate on the Areopagus Hill in Athens, which is where the ecclesia of the city-state of Athens started. Has he put up some? Oh, yeah, it's a bit like that. But that's the Temple of Apollos in Corinth, in fact. All my slides are pictures of Corinth. That's all I could find. Um, It was the site where the ecclesia, the governing assembly of the city-state of Corinth, of Athens met to debate matters concerning the government of Athens and who they were going to fight next and things like that. Um, but Paul got up and spoke about Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, at which Paul experienced, and Luke wrote down for us, some mocked him and sneered at him. Uh, Luke records that in Acts 17. And it clearly made an impression on Paul because he remembered it and he included it uh, in one of his letters to Corinth later on, the fact that he was mocked and sneered at. But after this, uh, Paul left Athens and moved on to Corinth, not a, not a great deal of distance away, but he got to Corinth in about the year 51. It was the same story in Corinth. He started off as he'd promised he would when he met the leaders of the church in Jerusalem years earlier. He went to the Jews first, but they kicked him out. So he went next door. And the Jews chased him some more. But then he had another dream in which the Lord spoke to him and says, Paul, don't be afraid. I have got many people in this city, Corinth, lined up for salvation. So Paul wasn't afraid and actually he, well, his friends caught up with him in Corinth and um, he stayed there for 18 months. Some of your, your Bibles might not specify 18 months. I've got a few translations, and some of them don't say it. But actually, if you go back to the Greek, it does say one year and um, six months. 
I was going to do it in Greek, but now I won't. You'll, you'll get enough Greek later. Um, now, reading through Paul's letters, that's all of them, um, you can see a number of small references that explain how Paul kept an eye on the churches that he'd founded. Um, he met Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth and took them with him to Ephesus. So he was going to leave a piece of himself, as it were, in Ephesus when he got there by leaving Priscilla and Aquila there. But an interesting thing, this is another digression into tonight's special, the ladies' version. Um, if you look up the references to Priscilla and Aquila in the scriptures, you will find that half of them refer to Aquila and Priscilla, and the other half refer to Priscilla and Aquila. Did I get that the right way around? Have we got two different ways around? Yeah, good. Um, now, it's a, it's a convention. This wasn't just by chance. It was an important convention of Greek writing that if you're going to list some names, you list the most important person first. So you'll find, say, in the Gospels, wherever there's a list of the 12 who are following Jesus, Peter always comes first. It's Peter, James, John, and down the list. There's a notable change to that, but that has to do with Thomas. He's my favorite apostle. I'm not allowed to talk about him tonight, so you'll never know about that one. Um, but you often find that Priscilla is listed first, when Paul or Luke is writing the story and it's concerning the church rather than just concerning sailing around the Aegean, selling tents or whatever else, camels maybe. That was Aquila's business. And Paul worked with him on it. But when it was to do with building the church, you generally find it's Priscilla and Aquila. There's, indeed, there's one um, valediction in the letter where he says, uh, greetings from the church that meets in Priscilla's house. So she was in charge. Um, and another one, um, you, we, uh, we can often see in those letters how Paul kept an eye on the young churches by sending, uh, as in the case just here, Timothy and Silas. Later there was also Titus, whom he sent to a young church to see what was going on preach a good message to put anything right and encourage the things that were going well. But at the, at the beginning of the section that we're about to start reading, um, he sends somebody else. I'm going to go on now. Um, and as I say, um, I'm reading um, a translation y you may not have heard of, but um, it's an excellent translation of the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, he writes, I appeal to you that there should be no splits or divisions or schismata among you. Schism, sound familiar? English word? It's from the Greek, schismata. Be of the same mind. Come to the same opinions. It was made clear to me by, here's another digression into the ladies' version, it was made clear to me by people under the authority of Chloe that there is a readiness for quarrels among you. Each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or the very spiritual ones, 
I am of Christ. Has Paul, Paul writes, has Christ been portioned out? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he answers his own question by explaining how few he himself baptized. Um, and where it says, under the authority of Chloe, he does write in the Greek, hupo Chloe, which means under the authority of Chloe. So whoever these people were that reported matters back to Paul, it seems that they were acting under Chloe's instructions. She may well have been a sort of team leader who'd gone back to from Ephesus to Corinth. I don't know where she'd come from. But she seems to have been leading a group of people who were doing just what Paul had previously asked Timothy, Silas, Titus to do. Check on the church, encourage them where they're doing well, and straighten them out where they've missed it just a little bit. In verse 17, sorry, I've, got, I've gone, uh, still in 1 Corinthians 1, he goes on. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the good news, and not in merely wise words, lest the cross of Christ should be deprived of its power. And that's a phrase from this chapter I really would like you to try to remember lest the cross of Christ should be deprived of its power. So far as Paul was concerned, and this is Paul, it's not just me, it's in your Bible too. Find it when you get home, it's verse 17. The cross of Christ comes with power. And he doesn't want anybody to be taking away from that. So that's why he uses that word deprived. The cross of Christ must not be deprived of its power. For the message of the cross is stup stupid foolishness to those who are on their way to death. But it is power. Dunamis is the Greek word here. The dunamis of God to those whom he is saving. For so it stands written, I will exhibit the nothingness of the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will bring to naught. Paul's quoting from Isaiah 29. Where is your wise man? Where your expounder of the law of Moses? Where is your investigator of the questions of this present age, the first century, in Greece? So he's addressing both his Jewish listeners and his Greek listeners. The law of Moses the questions of the present age, Greek philosophy at the time. Has not God shown the world's wisdom to be utter stupidity, foolishness? For after the world by its wisdom had failed to gain the knowledge of God, as God in his wisdom ordained, by the apparent stupidity, foolishness of the message which we preach, God was pleased to save those who accepted it. You do know that um, when you accepted this faith in Jesus, you accepted something that the world regards as foolish. Again, not my judgment on it. That's what Paul is saying. Our faith is regarded as stupidity. 
to the world. Seeing that Jews demand miracles and Greeks go in search of wisdom, while we proclaim a Christ who has been crucified, to the Jews an obstacle, a scandalon, to the Greeks stupidity. But to those who have received the call, whether Jews or Greeks, Christ, the power, the dynamite of God, to those who are to be saved. Now, Greek has um, two words for word, as you probably know, rhema, logos. It's got three words for love, and it's got several words for stupidity or foolishness. And the strongest one is moros, which means a moron. Oh, don't, don't say that again. Um, certainly not if you're on the radio. Apparently, one is not allowed to use that word on BBC Radio. Just for a warning for you, in case. Um, it's not used many times in the New Testament, but it is used four times in the passage I've just read. But I didn't use that translation. I'm just stuck to foolishness or stupidity. But it's also used by Jesus himself in one of his teachings where he talks about not provoking your brother or calling, calling a person raka, a rebel against God. Or indeed, Jesus says, calling him a, that word, moros. So, Paul using that word so many times in such a short space of parchment, he's walking on thin ice, it seems to me, because uh, Jesus has said, watch it, guys, don't use that word. But he does walk on thin ice, and he uses it four times. And he applies it to what he thinks, that is to say, what Paul thinks of Greek wisdom. He says, basically, it's stupidity, foolishness, if you can make the noun out of, no, moronish. That's the proper translation of one of the words in there. And I always thought that um, Paul's strongest rebuke in a letter was when he said uh, in Galatians, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you and made you give up the truth about Jesus, that he was crucified for you? I always thought that was his strongest. Foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? But actually what he said was a Greek word that's better translated, unthinking. Oh, unthinking Galatians. Anyway, there we are. That was a lesson to me when I spotted that one the other day. And what did Paul think about the Jewish response? An obstacle, a scandalon, or a scandal. Remember that the phrase in Galatians 5.11 was um, the scandal of the cross. He knew that's how the Jewish people thought about this whole message. And his big problem when he's addressing the church in Galatia is people wanting to go back to Jewish tradition. And he uses the same word again, the same phrase almost, the scandal of the cross. You see, the Jews were expecting their Messiah to be killing Greeks and Romans. To be throwing the Greeks and the Romans out of Israel. But this was a message about Jesus who had allowed himself to be killed by the Romans and in the most degrading manner, crucifixion. How could he be their Messiah? That was the question they were asking. 
as Paul had gone through Asia Minor and now in Greece. How could somebody who did not kill off Greeks and Romans, but allowed himself to be killed by the Romans, be the Messiah? Problem. Anyway, how is Paul going to address his underlying problems here in the church in Corinth? Uh, the first on list of problems in this letter, as you'll discover as the others go through it. It was a church comprised of schismatic, I should say, stupid fools. Uh, his words, not mine, and I'm using a more delicate translation, shall I say. A more, um, no, I don't know. I did have a nice word for it, now I've forgotten it. Dignified, that was it. <laughs> Paul was less dignified talking about them. Paul claiming that one apostle was better than another and seeming to think that these kinds of opinions were so important that it was okay to get angry about them and have a fight. So even in what we've read, Paul has begun to take two approaches to this problem that he's trying to address in Corinth. Firstly, he will emphasize the importance of the message of the cross of Jesus. And secondly, he will de-emphasize himself and his fellow apostles. He's going to present them as less important, underlings of the church, merely servants, uperites, that word again has come in, that Greek word, upero, under. People who are there to serve the church from the bottom up. I recently saw um, a documentary film about Rome in which they, I can't remember who it was, probably Bethany Hughes, telling us that um, there were some statues in Rome and around the empire which had loose heads so that when an emperor fell, or a tribune, or a legate, or somebody whose statue was standing in the marketplace, when he fell from grace, you could lift up his head, put it to one side, make a sculpture of the new guy, just the head, not bothering with the full statue, put this head in place, no glue required, and your statue was updated. Pretty good, eh? So if the Corinthians were familiar with the way politics worked in the first century in Greece and Rome, they should have known that men do not hold office for long. Other men pull them down, or in the case of changing heads, pull their heads off. And that did happen to one or two emperors, didn't it? But Paul's saying this was exactly what you've been doing, setting up three apostles to compete with Christ for followers. In chapter 1, 28, sorry, we're still in chapter 1 here, but I will move faster. It's because uh, uh, Tim rather asked me to do all this stuff, you see, so I'm, I'm running over time. Well, God has chosen those who are considered nothing at all in this world in order to reduce to nothing those who are seen as everything. Paul is saying, we don't play on a level playing field with the rest of society. 
we know it's tilted against us. But the way we will win, that's the Christian community, is by remaining at the bottom of society. Um, there's a lot in early church history where you can see they continue with that for a few hundred years. They remain the dross of society. In chapter 3, Paul continues on this subject. I, for myself, brethren, found it impossible to speak to you as spiritual men. I, it had to be as worldly people, mere babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, since for this you were not yet strong enough. And even now you are not strong enough. You are so unspiritual. For as long as jealousy and strife continue among you, can it, can it not be denied that you are unspiritual, living and acting like mere men of this world? For when someone says, I belong to Paul, or another says, I belong to Apollos, is this, is this not the way men in the world speak? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They are just God's servants, uperities, the underlings, through whose efforts you accepted the faith as the Lord granted power to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who was all the time giving growth so that neither the planter nor the waterer is of any importance. It is God who gives the growth. In chapter 4, there's another little underlining of these points that Paul is making. Chapter 4, verse 6, he writes, Nothing beyond what is written, so that you may cease to take sides in boastful rivalry for one teacher and against the other. The first part of that phrase, Martin Luther used to rely on quite a lot. And he's, he rendered it in Latin, solo scriptura. Stick to the scriptures. And he, of course, applied it much more wild, widely. Verse 9 of chapter 4, Paul returns to his theme, the deprecation of the apostles. It seems to me, Paul writes, God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. We have come to be a spectacle to all creation, both to angels and to men. And here he's making a reference to what happens in a triumphal procession through Rome. After some uh, legate or tribune or somebody in command of a couple of legions, no, probably four or five legions of Rome's army, has won a great victory and extended the empire, they would be offered the opportunity to have a triumph. In other words, a, a triumphal procession through Rome. The legate himself would be first, followed by his commanders and all the rest of his troops. And at the back, they'd be captives. And at the very back, they'd be the ones who were going to be sentenced to death in the forum in Rome. And that's what Paul is referring to here, he says. 
we are exhibited last of all. They're at the back of the parade, the men condemned to death. But let's go on to my really favourite bit of these four chapters. I've saved it till last. It's all right, I've got short distance glasses on. I have no idea what the time is. As for myself, brethren, when I came to you, it was not with superior eloquence or earthly wisdom that I came, announcing to you that which God had commanded me to bear witness. For I determined to be utterly ignorant when among you of everything except of Jesus Christ and of him being crucified. So far as I myself was concerned, I came to you in conscious feebleness, in fear and in deep anxiety. And my language and the message that I proclaimed were not adorned with persuasive words of earthly wisdom. Does that sound like your picture of Paul? The guy who went all over the Eastern Empire and then made it to Rome? Building churches everywhere. Someone who says of himself, I wasn't very clever. I was utterly ignorant. I came to you in conscious feebleness, in fear and deep anxiety. Is that the Paul? <laughs> Is that the Paul we've been brought up to think about? Someone like that? Well, actually, what happens in the middle of verse 4, which is where I stopped, in the middle, um, his self-deprecation stops and he finds a stick of dynamite in his pocket. I read the whole of verse 4. My language and the message that I proclaimed were not adorned with persuasive words of earthly wisdom, but they were adorned with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power, dynamite, He's changed a little. So that, he goes on, your faith should not rest in wisdom, sophistry, but your faith should rest in the power, the dynamite of God. Mary spoke last week. She spoke about a lot of stuff. But one of the points she was making was how the Lord sent out first the 12, then the 72, and then um, she didn't mention this lot. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, on one occasion, the Lord appeared to more than 500. And we know that when he ascended into heaven, those who saw him go, he sent out, didn't he? With power. He told just... Just one thing, guys, you will be anointed with that power in 10 days' time in this particular case. When it was the 12 and the 72, it's, right, lads, off you go. You're going to take some of my power with you. But it's my guess that when he appeared to 500, he'd have sent them out as well with the same promise, my power and authority. On the first occasion, when the twelve went out, um, L Luke records, is it, was it Luke? I've copied from, it appears in all, of the th all three synoptics. Yes, Luke says, 
Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons and power to heal all diseases. And when the second group came back after they'd been sent out with the same basic instructions, they came back and they said, Lord, even the demons obey us when we command them using your name. So they'd all known, they'd all learned that Jesus sent them out with power, which is why in that verse I mentioned earlier, and I would like you to try to remember, your faith rests in the power of God, not in some sort of philosophy. In Acts 3.16, Peter said something similar after speaking about Jesus and his death and resurrection. He said, Sorry, he's talking here about the guy at the gate beautiful whom he and John had lifted up. And as they lifted him up, strength came back into his legs and ankles and his feet. And he was leaping, um, oh, leaping, I can't remember the words now. Anyway, he was leaping and dancing in the temple because he'd been healed. And Paul, uh, Peter rather says of it, uh, it is by faith in that name that this man has been made whole. Peter knew his business now and that of John was to distribute the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an event that happened a little after um, the day of Pentecost. Acts 3.16, I guess um, you all know John 3.16, any office, John 3.16? that he gave. And 1 John 3.16? Wow. There are lots of 3.16s that are really worth remembering. Here's another one. This is one of my favorites. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and after ticking them off about all this stuff, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that the Spirit of God has made his home in you. Some translations have among you, but actually, that's wrong. I know. I understand a bit of Greek. The Spirit of God has made his home in you. In each one of us. And actually, when it says home in the Greek text, it uses a word oiku which is not the same as a word for a building. The word oiku actually specifically applies to your home, where you've got your couch, your toothbrush, your favorite mug in the kitchen. That's what the Spirit of the Lord has done. He's moved into each one of us. And he sees each one of us who believe in the Lord Jesus as his oiku, his place where... He's got his toothbrush, his favorite coffee cup, his favorite book. Anybody know what it is? There we are. So you were not just a house that he might visit like a temple made of stone. The important thing here, in New Testament times, which is where we are now, is that we're um, a temple with feet. 
where we go, any of us, the Spirit of God goes too. And if we don't go, he don't go, as I've been challenged on once or twice. Sorry, I'm not making that challenge to you, but keep it in the back of your minds. And he, the Spirit of God, goes with us into difficult situations where miracles might get demanded of us. You're probably bored of me telling you about my brother-in-law, Nigel. Um, so I won't tell that story again. Um, there's not been any further progress this week since last week when he got yet another finger back. But the scripture often says, when it talks about the disciples, the apostles going out, the Lord confirmed their word by the signs that followed. So, I'm getting to the end. Um, looks like I'm getting to the end of Tim's patience too. Back to strong language slightly. This is the last few verses of chapter 4. But remember, these are Paul's words, not mine, okay? So if you need to take cover, take cover. But he writes, Some of you have been puffed up through getting the idea that I'm not coming to Corinth. But if the Lord is willing, I shall come to you without delay. And then I shall know not the fine speeches of conceited people. But what is their power? He writes. For the kingdom of God is not a thing of words. It is a thing of power. What shall it be? Shall I come to you with a rod or in a loving and tender spirit? Well, a loving and tender spirit is probably the best description of the Holy Spirit himself. I'm quite sure that's what Paul would have preferred to go and visit Corinth in. So thank you for listening. Um, I hope that none of what I have said sounded too heavy. Paul did actually say in chapter 3, verse 2, uh, none of this is going to be heavy. These chapters include no meat, just milk. And remember... Uh, mostly what I've said is just from the word of God. It's not my ideas. This has been a Bible study and I've looked through some scriptures with you. Thanks. Thank you, Dorian. And thank you for that wonderful reminder that it's not about us and our power and strength, but about that of the Lord through his spirit. I'm going to invite...